This presentation was from Yorks Australia 2017, held in Sydney. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit yorksaustralia.com.au. I get to work with these two lovely ladies, and it's one of the, the great pleasures of my life uh, owning my own company, that I get to choose who I work with, um, and I get to choose people like this. So I'm very, very happy to introduce and, and let you share in some of the wisdom that I get to experience every day. Corinne Smith, Nova Franklin, please join me in welcoming them to the stage. So thanks for coming. I'm, I apologise that we're not Dom, but I hope anyway you're going to get lots of value about this. This is going to be all about not the design work you do, but the things you do around your design work. So I'm Karina. I have a background in design, but also in psychology. I've worked in-house, I've worked as a consultant, I've worked in organisational change, I've worked in lots of things. And I'm Nova, I am a psychologist, I cannot read your mind. Um, I've worked in-house and as a consultant, and at the moment I work at Meld, as does Karina, which means that we're not UXs, we actually design other things, we design the engagement that people have with organisations, people on the outside of those organisations, so customers and partners, all sorts of people on the outside of organisations and all sorts of people on the inside. So not much of what we do is digital, but it is about design. Yep. And today we're going to talk about designing the design around the design process. Now, I want you all to listen because at the end we're actually going to get you to do a little bit of... Um, not even homework, it's here work. So if you aren't able to do the here work, we'll know you won't have listened during the whole session. So get your pens um, going. Okay, so first what it is, is as designers, we love to create amazing things that do great things for our customers. It's why we're all here, it's why we get up in the morning, it's why we're passionate. Um, but as we get to move into many more complex spaces and apply design to those spaces, it's actually a messier process. So the systems that are going to support us helping get those things implemented in the end are bigger and messier and lots and lots of things going on them. So we actually start to need to become aware of these and actually design for them. Now the reason is, on the left, is kind of the world that I used to design in when I was a visual designer. I went into my box, um, there's all these nice creative people in there, we didn't do tapestry or whatever they're doing, but we did similar things. And it was kind of take it out of the box for a little while, show a couple of people at the end, get them to choose one or two, and then go back inside our box and start all over again. Now, what my everyday looks like is more on the right, which is Game of Thrones. People are having battles, they're like in rooms kind of warring with each other, people are whispering behind the scenes, there's moats coming, um, you know, up and down, there's castles and battles, and this is really difficult to navigate when you're actually just trying to get good work done. So what we're actually going to do is we're going to talk about designing with the system that you're operating in and designing the project around the project that you're doing. Because we believe if you don't do that, and our experience is if you don't do that, things are not going to necessarily turn out well. So what might have been this before? Lovely uh, kind of goal. We went along and did the project, and there was an outcome. Now, if we don't do what we're going to talk about today, it comes like this. We have a goal or some kind of problem space. There's lots and lots of messy, really complicated, ugly, emotional tears and things happening in the middle. And then we come out with something that's completely different to actually what we're supposed to be um, doing. So really, what it's about is saying that we design this 
And if we don't do the thing we're going to talk about today, you're going to get a three-legged, unwinged, blind um, unicorn. So it's all about implementing well. Okay, so the four factors that we're going to talk about today are managing scope, killer teams, engaging stakeholders, and actually influencing the outcome at the end. So the first one is all about being clear on your intent. The second one is making sure that you have the right people involved, both in your team and around your team. The third one is about communicating to stakeholders and how to get them really engaged in the process so they don't kind of throw their um, bullets in at the end. And then actually looking towards implementation. So instead of thinking about implementation when you start implementing or launch when you start launching, actually starting to think about that right from the beginning. Let's get into it. So managing scope. The things that we need to watch out for are when things are unclear or there's a misunderstanding. Now, I've been in situations in early in a project where we're actually coming up and saying, here's the sort of the things that we're looking to do, and a stakeholder says, oh, but I thought it was that. And where's my X or where's my Y that I was promised? Now, if we, we thought what we were doing was the right thing and we thought the scope we had was clear, but obviously there was some kind of misunderstanding there. When scope changes impact our ability to deliver is another problem. So what, some, what happens is we're going into a project, we're doing some research, we've come into the end of our insights, and what we've actually discovered is something that actually, the problem is quite different to what we actually set out to actually do. And so if we actually don't manage that change in scope and the, the, um, the direction that we need to go with everyone involved, we actually could potentially not deliver well or actually what happens is not deliver at all and things go a bit messy and haywire. And the last one is unrealistic expectations about what and will be delivered. So somebody says, I want you to build X. You actually know it's not possible to build X within the time frame and the budget with the people that you have. And if those discussions aren't had well, again, problems can occur. So um, some of the things that one of the tips is clear identification of the problem space. And what we're really talking about is really spelling things out very clearly and very publicly so people are often reminded of what you're actually trying to do. Um, so one of the things is making a list of what's in and out of scope. I used to work in a technology kind of area and one of those things we had in our sort of specs was in scope and out scope and these kind of exhausted lists. And at the time I really hated it. It was just like, oh, you know, do we have to list everything? But actually now I think as the complex, uh, the, the solutions um, and the problems that we're solving can become more complex, we do actually have to list it out and be really, really particular about what we're actually doing and what we're not doing so that there is no misunderstanding of that along the way. Because people make assumptions. If we haven't been clear, people will assume that something's going to be done. They will assume the meaning of something. And we'll show you a bit of an example in a minute. Um, get specific and talk about what it is, but also what it isn't. Um, so we're not, um, for example, recently we are actually working in a service centre. And one of the things that they were talking about is we're going to redesign and kind of redesign the environment of this particular service centre. Now, service centre can actually thing, mean many things. So we said it is the inside of the service centre. It's not the outside of the service centre. It's the staff within the service centre, but it's not operationally what happens around the service centre. So actually talking about what it is and what it isn't is really important. And then I'm going to show you a method about using a dartboard to actually communicate what's in scope and what's peripheral. So what we're here, we've got this example of um, listing out what's in scope. So improved citizen experience in government and service centres. So one of the things that was in scope is actually the physical layout of the store. 
what wasn't in scope was the website. Now, if we didn't put that in, a lot of the tech teams would assume that they're going to be called on to be designing the website that was part of the kiosk um, in that in-service environment. The next one is this dartboard. Now, this is a really good technique that actually Nova's been using a lot in her projects lately. Um, and you'll see it on one of the walls in a minute. But this is something you can stick on your wall and start to stick things like the, those items that we listed out. This is in scope and it's critical. This is out of scope. Um, not to be touched at all. And peripheral. These are things that we might do if we've got time. Then when we go into concept generation, we start to put the concepts in here. So when we think about going out to testing and what we'll take out to testing, we put these are the concepts that we must test, these are the concepts that we won't test, and these are the ones that we may test if we have time or if they become more crucial to the thing. And we actually put these things up on the wall. So you can hear we've got a design wall that we're working on. And this was kind of in the early weeks of this particular project. But we've got clearly at the top stated the objectives or the scope of the project and then the diagram which starts to talk about what's in scope and what's out. And we actually go through this every time we do a showcase or a presentation to remind people of what we're actually doing and where we're focusing and where we're not actually focusing on. So people don't lose um, and, and start, to, start to forget and kind of push things in there as well. Okay. So the next one is about deconstructing um, concepts next tip, tip. And this is something about when you have a number of concepts and you've kind of drawn them up on a page or they're kind of loosely wireframed up, there's a lot of ability to read different things into what that concept will be. Um, and so what we want to do is collaborate, break these down for a number of reasons. One is to get a shared understanding of that concept. So to, to um, remove the, the kind of ambiguity of what that concept might mean and actually pull it apart and say, this is again, this is what it is and this is what it isn't. The next important thing is because early on these concepts, they may be just drawings, but we want to start to understand from an organisational point of view what capabilities are going to be needed to deliver on that concept. So that's who are the people that we're going to need to involve? How do we need to change things for staff, for example? What technology will we need to change? Or what new technologies will we need? And um, what processes might we need to change? Now, this is really important to do from an early conceptual point of view because you want to start to think about the feasibility and the viability of what you're actually thinking about creating. And this is before detailed design even happens. And you'll do this with solution architects. You'll do it with architects. You'll do it with social workers who are going to be involved in delivering it. You'll do it with stakeholders. You'll do it with engineers. So all of these people start to get in really early and start to understand the direction in which you're going and how they may, might need to be involved and what they might to, need to do if some of these concepts get to their, um, their place. It also creates buy-in for them. They kind of say, yeah, this is really great, or you could extend it in this particular way, or you might be able to do it differently if you think about this. Um, and you also start to think about how that concept impacts the wider service experience. So, for example, if you're creating a change in a call centre, for example, what will that mean if calls go up or calls go down? Where do the calls go when they get hung up? So we start to think about that more end, end experience of that concept. Um, so a couple of, just to show you one way to deconstruct the concept. So this was some concepts we created for a, a particular project. And as you can see, they're really loose. And if we leave them there and we start to share them around with actually deconstructing them, you can read lots into it and it doesn't actually tell you that much at all. So one, we use something like this, which is um, actually a, one of the Word documents that Nova's actually got, which actually says, title of the concepts, what are the things that actually should be in it? 
What are the things that shouldn't be in it? What are some of the benefits of it? How do you break down those capabilities? What are the risks if we actually implement this sort of thing? So it starts to become much more real for people. Right. Hello. I'm going to talk to you about killer teams. These are not teams that kill you. <laughs> These are teams that help you keep the project alive and um, deliver change in the end. Alrighty, so things to watch out for. Not having the right people at the right time. So often when you're putting together a group of people, you might not have the ideal lineup, and that can make it really hard to deliver. So you're going to have to move pieces around to try and find that you can get the right lineup. Um, comings and goings can also really stump you if someone leaves your project halfway through. It can really make it very difficult to deliver. Um, some other things that can upset the apple cart is underperformance. And I like to think about underperformance on two axes. So one is skill. Does the person have the ability to do the work? And the other one is will. Do they actually want to do the work? And what you start to find is that those two things are actually related to each other. So sometimes when you help a person develop enough skill to do the work, all of a sudden they have the will because they know how. Um, the other thing that can stump you is conflict. So conflict between different people. Um, that can happen when you've got unclear expectations. That can happen when you've got um, personalities that rub. And, um, you know, it's hard to have a real conversation with someone when something's not working. What if I make her cry? I was really worried about that. Are we really allowed to tell people what we want? Are we really allowed to tell people when they piss us off? So all of those things can get in the way. Let's talk about what you can do about it. So you want to aim for a strong lineup. You want to look for a team that has convergence, so areas of strength that come together and divergence. We like to think a lot about multidisciplinary teams. Hard to say, hard to do. But um, it means bringing people in with different skill sets. So bringing someone in who's come from a design background, and that might be industrial design, that might be graphic design. Bringing someone in who understands what it's like to be on the front line in front of a, start, in front of a customer. Um, bringing someone to the team who knows how to develop the thing that you want to develop in the long term. People with different views, people of different ages, people of different opinions, lovers and haters. You want them all in the, all in the team if you can get them. Um, different people with varying strengths. She's really great at communication. He's really great at, um, at sketching things up or engaging stakeholders or um, whatever else it is that you need. So a divergence of people in that way. Um, and different personalities. Loud people, quiet people, um, all smart people. You also want to plan for comings and goings. So often you'll have a project that runs over this amount of time and sadly you'll only have a person who's available for this bit and then this bit. So how do you plan for that? I think in advance you need to think about it. You need to allow time for it. You want to enable a handover. So if Ash is coming in and Karina's going out, can I make some time for Ash to consciously think about what he can hand over to Karina and actually have them work together for a little bit of that time so that it's a smooth handover? I think I've talked about all of the things on that slide. <laughs> um, the other thing that... I think is really important is doing a great induction or a kickoff with your team so that everybody knows where they stand 
and who's on the team and how they can interact with them in a positive way right from the beginning. And this isn't a 10 minute thing, it's not a one hour thing, it's probably a two or a three hour thing. And that's a lot of time to get everyone in the room, but it absolutely pays off in time that could be unproductive later on. So the sorts of things that we like to talk about when we had kickoffs is what is it that I'm going to do? And to have that as a conversation rather than a, I'm going to do this, this and this, but it's to allow other people to know who's going to do what and when. Some of the other things um, is we always like to make sure that the people in our projects are going to develop in some way. So at MELD we have a thing called a skills matrix and we ask our people to plot themselves on that skills matrix and there's whole lot of different capabilities on there from doing research to testing to um, one of them speaking in public because we're consultants Um, but we ask people to plot themselves on that skills matrix and then we say to them on this project how can we take you to the next step so I had someone on a project last year she'd never presented anything before she'd never run a workshop so I didn't just say well you're going to do that workshop I said to her which part of this workshop would you feel comfortable to do? And then she did the beginning bit and she learned something about herself and we kept going. But everybody knows what everyone else needs to develop or wants to develop um, unless they need to just tell me in private because they're a little bit uncomfortable about that and that's okay too. Um, A commitment to help each other support and grow. So I can help you um, by coaching you to run a better workshop or think through what you might do in that workshop. And then, you know, I can help you by helping you to draw better. I'm not so good at drawing. Um, That kind of thing, the exchange. How do we all help each other? Because when I teach you something, I get better at it. So that's also another way of developing people. Um, There's a practice that we like to use around what cheeses me off. So, um, you know, what cheeses me off is when you don't really do what you say you're going to do and I have to stay up in the middle of the night fixing your work. So if I say that at the beginning of the project and it's not about an individual, that helps people to know that that we shouldn't end up there later. But also that idea of um, when I'm grumpy, I do. So for me, when I'm grumpy, I'm really quiet and you'll notice me tapping in a Google Doc on your work in the middle of the night. (laughs) Stop me. Not in the middle of the night. Stop me and go, hey, something's going wrong. You're grumpy. What's that all about? Um, The other thing is uh, just making a commitment to each other that during this project we commit to doing a certain thing. Um, You know, having, having courageous conversations, for example. We want to display... All of these things we've talked about on our design wall, which we'll talk about in a minute, so that we don't forget, we don't just make these conversations, make these commitments up front and walk away. We remember as we're going past the project, oh, yeah, I I forgot that person really wanted to um, learn more about research and we haven't done anything about it. It's on the wall so we can remember. Here's a picture of a discussion guide that we've used at Mel before. It's a little bit old, but... um, shows the kind of things people can talk about. Um, The other thing is frequent check-ins. So aligning activities to intent. And there are three questions that we can ask about that. So, you know, we really want to make sure that we're not just doing work or doing activities because we said we would. 
Um, but we want to make sure that we're doing them because they help us get to where we need to get to at the end of the project. So the first question we'll often ask is, where do we need to get to by the end of the project? What can we do today to make sure we get there? Um, sorry? Where do we need to get to at the end? Um, where do we need to get to by the end of the t today? Therefore, what activities can we actually do? And then reflecting on that. What did you learn? What did we as a group learn today? So it's not personal. Nobody has to give each other feedback, but it's something we do all together. What did we learn today? What did we do really well? And what could we do differently? Let's talk a little bit about engaging stakeholders. By stakeholders, I'm generally talking about the people on the inside of the organisation. So things to watch out for are conflicting agendas. So people in different silos who have different objectives, different KPIs. So they don't necessarily want to agree with each other because they have to get different things done and they'll be rewarded for doing different things. Um, limited dollars and resources causing conflict. Um, and people who just want to tick the box. Okay, well, we asked some people. We, you know, we've done that now. Great, let's move on. Um, that one is the worst one you can make me get involved with. Um, some of the other issues are around um, lack of buy-in and support. So it's really helpful to know who's powerful because they can absolutely block your project. You want to involve them as early as you can. Sometimes you don't know who they are. Um, and so that's the unknown stakeholders who come in too late. Um, uncertainty and back chat. If people don't know what's about to come or you haven't given them enough information on what you're doing, they make stuff up. And that's really bad for your project because they talk about it when you can't hear them and um, it can really derail you. And then the other thing that can go wrong is a change of guard or a lack of continuity. So you've spent six weeks, you've finally got a high five from the person who's going to roll out your work and then they're like, I'm going now. So that can really stump you as well. So here are some ways in which you can overcome those challenges. The first one is to think about who are the potential blockers who have a great deal of influence in this organisation and who are the people who are likely to support me who have a great deal of influence. And then what you want to do is you want to try and think about how can you support the potential champions and enlist their help to bring those potential blockers across so that they also become champions. There's many ways in which you can do that and there's many people you might want to plot on a matrix like this. So you might want to plot decision makers, people who own the problem space, for example, a business owner of something you're about to change, um, builders of potential solutions that you're designing, people who will implement those solutions and those impacted. Here's an example of how you use that matrix to then create what we would call a stakeholder engagement plan. So this is just for um, one of the stakeholders listed out here, but you would do this for multiple stakeholders or for multiple stakeholder groups. So you might think about how will this change impact this person, both, both positively and negatively. So in this case, we're talking about a project sponsor. So they'll need to give you time or allocate time to the project. So that's an impact on them. That's probably a negative. Um, 
if you get things right, their reputation should go up, but if you mess it up, their reputation will go down. So that one is potentially neutral. And then the last impact here would be the ability to provide a better service. So that's that's the potentially what's in it for them. Um, then you want to think about what you want them to say and think and what you want them to do. And then how will you get them there? How will you get them to say, think and do what you really need them to? And that's about interventions. So in this case, um, you want your project sponsor to provide you with a budget. You want them to attend research and showcases so they've got a whole lot of buy-in and there's no surprises for them at the end. And you also want to give them key messages and people, work with them to decide which people they're going to discuss those key messages with. When you're thinking about engaging stakeholders, another thing you can do is design with and not for. So you want to start off in the beginning by going, what has and hasn't worked in the past? The worst thing you can do is come up with this sexy new design that's already been tried and failed in the past. That's your worst case scenario, right? So you need to spend the time understanding. Um, the other thing that we really love to do is invite people to participate in research, even if they're just watching. So we're doing some work with the Department of Justice and during the week we've had three or four different people sit in on our research sessions. We, we invited them to ask questions um, of the people we're interviewing, but we led the interviews and at the end they've walked out going, oh, I had no idea that this, you could get this much information in an hour. I had no idea how horrible it is for some people to participate in this process, not the process of us interviewing, <laughs> the process of navigating parts of the justice system. So it can really help create that empathy and an understanding of what you do. The other thing you can do is you can involve those same people in testing. So you can put ideas past them and you can test with them. Again, that gives them a sense and an understanding of what you do. And when they know what you do, because it can be so mysterious to them that they're just like, why does it take so long? Or they might block. Um, it really helps with the buy-in. Alrighty. And the last thing you can do is to externalise the process. So what does that mean? That means that you can, for example, use a design wall. We like to make our walls as public as possible. We had one, we did some work with the ATO, we had our wall right outside the kitchen, so people kept walking past, and um, we had a whole lot of prompts on it, like, what do you think? Have we got it right? Do you have an extra idea? Um, and people would walk past, maybe reading it, were like, hey, what do you think about that? And it really helped to get them engaged. Um, Messy is good. Messy is good because if it's messy, what you're saying is there's room for your ideas here. If it's all perfect and beautiful, what you're saying is I got it, I'll figure it out. So, you know, there's nothing for you here. So messy is good. Um, sometimes you can't all be together. So we have some virtual options that we use. We use Google Apps. We use Trello. And there's some other things you can use. I haven't tried yet, but there's a thing called Real Time Board. Put your hand up if you've used it and you like it. Yeah, that's a pretty good testament. Um, quite a few people in the front, people in the back did put their hands up. Um, so there's ways that you can communicate um, virtually, but you just don't get the cut through. You just don't get the exposure and the buy-in that you get when you have a massive wall outside of a kitchen somewhere. 
Here's a picture of a design wall that Karina worked on. You can see up in the top corner is um, about the project. Down a little bit is the design process and where we're at. So you can see the little dotted circle that tells people where we're at. Here's the calendar. Here's some early analysis and synthesis and, um, and then some other things. That one's pretty clean. My walls would be messier than that, but Karina has a much steadier hand than me. Um, the other thing you can do for working out loud is to have frequent showcases. So who would you invite to a showcase? Everyone. Everyone you see in that organisation. Just It doesn't matter. As long as people come and they have time to listen and they have a chance to talk, how long should they go for? I reckon half an hour. 15 minutes of you talking, 15 minutes of conversation. How often should you have them? Depends on the project. Sometimes Karina has hers twice a week. I usually go for once a week just because there is a real pressure, I think, around showing your stuff. Um, how long should you take to prepare for a showcase? I've heard of some people who take a day. I would take an hour at the most because it's really just telling the story of where you're up to. It's not... It's not really an activity in itself, it, but it does help your team to get to a certain point at a certain time. Um, one tip is the beginning of the showcase, reminding people that there's been a lot of hard work going into this project, that um, we've consulted a, you know, a good number of people and that they can give you any feedback, but it needs to be respectful. When you don't do that, sometimes you get the angry pitchfork crowd um, saying things that that really disengages your team. Um, and then finally, virtual options. I've done showcases on the phone. I've done showcases on video conference. They work quite well. Um, sometimes you can send things around beforehand, but there's nothing like doing it in person. Cool. Okay, this one is a bit controversial and it's something that's close to my heart because I actually really hate the word project. And I hate it because what it says is that there is an end to something and that we kind of just throw our tools over the fence and we walk away. And that's not what we design for. We actually design for programs of work. We design for services that live on beyond the way that, that first launch date or that implementation date. But it's actually not something that we often either get involved in or really thinking about from the beginning of the project. And it can be hard because one, we actually don't necessarily know what we're designing um, at the beginning. But it's also hard because it's a lot to think about that in 2020 something's going to go live and need to be living on and 2020 is three years away. So why would we even think about that now? Um, so a couple of things that to watch out for in this space around thinking about the future is the lack of understanding and support of the design process. So this is real about like the process that you're in. If the people that you are designing for but with, hopefully, don't understand the process you're about to go through, things can get really messy and ugly because they start to think, why are you spending four weeks actually just going out and talking to people? I want a solution now. And I've heard that many times um, in the work I've been doing. That project versus program focus. So again, we're just working on a project, then we work on another project, and we work on another project. But what happens to those other projects after they got finished previously? Um, an inadequate handover to implementation. So the fact that we've learnt all of this goodness and we understand the space really well, we hand it over the fence, but how do those people actually take what we handed over and what do they do with it in the future? 
So, um, some of the things to actually watch out for or, or to look at here, one of the tips is help people understand the design approach. Um, so, get project owners and bring them on that human-centred design journey. Um, the rationale behind your, your approach, the emotional journey of the project. So knowing that, you know, when you go out to do research, it's super exciting, we're having these great conversations, and then, oh my God, we've just done 40 interviews, and we need to synthesise all that information, and you get your stakeholders involved in that, and I'm looking at Jason in the room, and their head starts to explode. It's like, oh my God, this is just so hard, I need to go home and lie in a dark room. Um, then you get into like a prototyping. It's like fun. We've got like cardboard out. We're kind of spray painting things, and that's really fun. And then, oh my God, we've got to actually implement this. Ooh, emotion goes down again. Um, and so, I, I had an example the other day where I was talking to a client, and he's a scientific researcher. And he said, How is talking to 40 people reliable and valid? And it's like, wow, that's actually a really good question. But he was going to shut the project down if we couldn't actually justify why we were taking a qualitative ethnographic approach to our research. So that was something we actually had to get through and talk him through design process. Another project I was working on where we got to the point where it was three quarters through the project and we realised the people who were actually commissioning the work had no understanding um, or really low maturity in terms of the design process. So it was a failing on our part that we didn't educate them early enough. So a couple of ways to do that. Um, we actually use this thing on many of our walls, which is actually helping people understand where they are in the process. So this was like an adaptation of the design process and created for um, Queensland government. And we actually have this up on our walls and say, we are here. So when someone says to me, but I want my solution now, we say, well, that will kind of come in a few weeks' time, we'll know what we're going to do. But at the moment, we're just trying to understand the problem space a bit better. Another great tool is the emotional journey. So this is the thing that you can actually put up again and talk people poo to say, you will go through this process. You will feel pretty crap in two parts of that here, and you're going to feel awesome in those other two parts up there. And ex expect that to happen, and then remind them when they get to here, and they're like, oh, my God, that, yep, yep, see, we told you, it's going to happen. And then if it doesn't happen, celebrate. If it's all fantastic, good, you know, great, great for you. <laughs> I haven't experienced that happening yet, but anyway. Um, the next one I want to talk about is support the handover to implementation. So what this is about is as you're going through the process, how are you documenting what you found? How are you documenting those concepts that you've actually created? Because when that project actually starts to be built in 2019, and I'm working on a project at the moment, going through that kind of early conceptual um, uh, stage, that actually won't be starting to be built until 2019. That will be a completely different team, I bet you, that actually starting to do the implementation. It will be a completely different team who will be managing the support and implementation of that project. So what do we give them now and what do we start to build now so that those sort of insights that you've gained and the kind of things that you've learnt can actually live on in time? Now, um, there's journey maps that you can create. Um, here's an example of one we've actually, a, a document that we've put together um, for a project that we're working on with the Australian Bureau of Statistics. That's the one that's, that's going to be going live in many, many years' time. And what we've created is actually this type of research um, and concept uh, kind of playbook, I suppose, and it outlines the key concepts that we've actually been taking out to testing. What are the capabilities that are going to be required to deliver that? So we went through that process of concept deconstruction. So from an organisational perspective, what do they start to need to build on now to actually deliver this concept? 
um, what are the design principles that you should be measuring your um, designs against as you get into that stage of sort of testing them in a more real space. And then all the insights that we actually learned. Because if we don't capture those, they can't be used in the future. One of the things I know we'd all love to be able to do is share our research more widely um, because there's so much research being done. There's so much that we know now as designers. How do we actually help that not actually serve the project that we're in, but maybe the rest of the organisation and maybe outside the organisation as well? So one of the things we actually did is we created this really nice-looking document for the ABS and it's actually being distributed throughout the entire organisation because that project that we're working on is actually not just impact or impacting the team that we're working with, that direct team, but there's huge amounts of programs of work that are going on in that organisation and they can all use this research to actually inform their work. So. All right, so in the beginning we ask you to note down things that you like to experiment with. The theory of getting people to change in the future is that they make a commitment to one or two things that they'd like to do in the future. They make it to somebody else and that they just try and do that quite soon after they've made the commitment. So find a person next to you and just let them know of the things that you've heard today. Is there something there that you would like to take back to your work and experiment with? It could be something very small, it could be something larger, but have a little chat to the person next to you around something that you'd like to play with. Just experiment with, see if it works for you. It may not go. Okay, if you can hear me, stop talking. See, I should be a school teacher. Um, <laughs> problem with that trick is you can really only use it once. It gets old really quickly. Um, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Someone put their hand up. Yes! yes. What are you going to do? In and out of scope. What are you going to do? Emotional journeys. Yeah. Giant bullseye. Yeah, it's good. You can put lots of things in the bullseye like what's in and out of scope? What will we research? What will we not research? Um, what concepts will we test? What concepts will we not test? Yeah, it's really good. And you can get all sorts of people to play with the bullseye like project sponsor. I what they think. Customers. Oh, they think something else. It's really cool. What are you going to do? Deliberately pointing just anywhere. <laughs> Where we're at with the design process. Yeah, cool. Make the calendar bigger. Make the calendar bigger. Yeah. Thank you, Dan. What are you going to do? <laughs> Ash? Nothing. I already do it. <laughs> We've got two clients we're trying to do that with now and I thought, that's fantastic, just as we're doing this. Yeah. Yeah, because then there's no surprises at the end. So Ash said, make his research more public. What are you going to do? I'm looking at all of you. <laughs> you feel obliged to answer me now. Explain <laughs> the rationale behind the research. Great. 
Yeah, and that would be a good... Co if you're not sure of the answer to Karina's question, go and ask her afterwards, because it's very cool what she said to that man. Yeah. Does anyone have any questions? How much time have we got? <laughs> Basically, one minute. Basically what I said is that the type of research that he is doing is um, about a hypothesis that he needs to test to see if that hypothesis is true and then he needs to get the numbers behind that to make sure that that hypothesis and the, the numbers meet up. What we're doing is we're actually just going out and exploring, we're trying to understand the space. We're not trying to quantify anything at this point in time, although I'm looking at Stephen uh, Coxie here. We have done some of that after we've actually gone and done that research to try and bring the numbers up against it. But really it was about exploration. And the great thing is that man who was actually an absolute hater and was so close to shutting us down is actually headlining our big presentation that we're doing on our insights next week. He volunteered. He loves us. So that's great. That's it. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from Yorks Australia 2017. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit yorksaustralia.com.au.